Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Now, today on the podcast, I'm actually going to start a two-part podcast called Pandemic Positives. I want to talk about some of the things that have happened in ministry leadership and in the church as a whole over the past uh, uh, 90 days that have been really positive, I think, and can have a positive outcome as we go forward in moving on to what I'll call a new normal. Now, that raises an important issue. Some people are saying, man, I can't wait until we get back to normal, or I can't wait until we get back to doing what we've always done before. Well, newsflash, we're not going back to normal. Instead, we have to go forward to a new normal. Now, it's really important to think about the perspective that you may have as a church leader on this issue, because sometimes church leaders uh, are very critical of people who resist change. We all have our favorite stories about our, uh, you know, cranky deacon or recalcitrant elder or someone in our church who was uh, resistant to change and how we caricature that person and sometimes demean them because of their resistance to the changes that we're trying to make. Well, as a church leader, make sure you don't fall into that same trap yourself in responding to the pandemic, that you don't, don't be the person who says, well, I don't like the way things are now, and I want to get back to the way things were before, and I don't want to be a part of any change going forward because I like things just the way they've always been. Don't be that person. Instead, you have to have a more proactive attitude that says, a change has been thrust upon us. Some of the change is negative, but some of the changes are either positive or have led to positive outcomes and can, for the future, shape us to be more effective in ministry leadership. So I want to talk on the podcast today and again next week on what I'll call pandemic positives. And these are some observations I'd like to make about things that are changing right now are things the pandemic has revealed that need to change that can be long-term positive outcomes for the church and for ministry organizations. The first positive outcome from the pandemic is this. Our overdependence on attraction models of church ministry have been exposed and can be corrected. Our overdependence on attraction models has been exposed and can be corrected. Now, in a previous podcast some time ago, I talked about different models of evangelism, particularly that are used today in churches. There are three broad categories. There are attraction models, which is everyone come to the event, hear the gospel, and make a response. There are engagement models, where Christians start ministries that engage people about the gospel and invite them to become followers of Christ. And then there are what I call infiltration models. And that is where Christians are sent into the community and into community organizations and into community activities in order to present the gospel and do ministry in that context. Now, all three of these have some value. And you can find attraction, engagement, and infiltration models in the scriptures. And you can also find multiple examples of all three being done well in church ministry today. But my contention for some years has been that the American church is out of balance and putting too much emphasis on attraction models. 
We have, for example, uh, reduced evangelism to inviting your friends to church. That certainly is not a biblical model or a biblical example of what evangelism was in the New Testament. The emphasis on the New Testament, while some attraction models are found there, the emphasis was on infiltration models, equipping people to go into the community, to go into community organizations and community settings, and share the gospel there. And so this over-dependence on attraction models has been revealed because with, when, the churches, when churches have been stripped uh, of their opportunity to meet together on a weekly basis, their ministry has been truncated. They've had no real capacity to accomplish the mission they've been given because everything depends on them together. Now, let's talk about this issue of how important it is to assemble together. Uh, some people have been quoting the verse, do not forsake the assembling together of yourselves as is the matter of some. And I certainly believe that verse is true and I certainly believe it ought to be implemented in the church. But I think we're making a mistake if we believe that not forsaking your, uh, the assembling together only equals everyone gathering in a public worship service. Now let me say that again. I think we're making a mistake if we equate not forsaking the assembling together of ourselves only with gathering for a large corporate public worship service. Worship services are important. But one of the concerns I have that's also been revealed by the pandemic is that worship services are often production events rather than gatherings that focus on word, fellowship, and other purposes of the church. So this idea that we have to gather together in a large corporate public experience is the only expression of obeying the scriptural admonition to gather together, I think is, is a faulty. I think the church globally could teach the American church something really important at this point. In most of the places in the world, when the church gathers, it does not gather by the hundreds and certainly not by the thousands. It gathers by the tens and twenties. In most places in the world, when the church gathers, it gathers in small groups. And most churches globally are small churches. Now, that doesn't mean that large group gatherings are bad or that large churches are bad. We rejoice that God brings together movements of people that produce large experiences of worship, of hearing preaching, and of responding to God. We, we rejoice in that. But we can't make that the norm that every church must achieve in order to fulfill the biblical mandate of gathering together. Because in reality, the church gathers mostly in small groups or in small uh, congregations all around the world. You know, this is one of the good things that God has given me the opportunity to do uh, over my lifetime, and that is in some, in some limited ways to be able to travel outside the U.S. and experience the church in other contexts. Now, I, I'm not a person who's been to a hundred countries or anything like that, but, but I've been to several places. I've been in South America, Central America, Asia, Europe, uh, Africa, and in all of those contexts, I've been able to engage in worship with fellow believers. Now, in some of those places, I've actually been speaking at conventions or conferences, which would, of course, call together large numbers. But I'm talking now about specifically when I've been in these contexts and I've worshipped uh, with local churches. 
In those instances, I have almost always worshipped in a small church, often in a rented facility or even in a home environment. And in that context, the church comes together for worship, for the word, for fellowship, and to fulfill the functions of what it means to gather together in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's underscore this. The global church is mostly small. In most places, the people have a Bible and each other, and that's really the resources that they have as they come together. Bible and each other to come together for worship and word and fellowship. Now, let me talk about another aspect of this emphasis on having to come together for the large Sunday worship service as the only way to fulfill the biblical mandate to assemble together. And this is going to be hard to hear. It's a little delicate to talk about, but I feel like I need to bring up the issue. I'm concerned that one of the reasons that some churches are trying so desperately to get back together is really the leader's ego and the leader's need to fulfill a function that gives him or her value. I've heard a number of pastors say, for example, man, I really miss preaching to live audiences, and I can't wait to get back to that. Well, I also enjoy preaching to live audiences, and I'll be satisfied and uh, fulfilled when it happens again. But I don't need to do that to validate my spiritual life or my spiritual commitment or my spiritual value. And this is what concerns me. So if you're a leader listening to this podcast right now, and one of the reasons that you're in a rush to get your church back together for a large assembly, public worship experience is so that you can preach to a large crowd again, I want to ask you if you don't need to check your ego at the door. And ask yourself if the reason you're trying to get people together is more about you than it is about them. Another reason that pastors and other leaders want to get people back together is because we feel a great sense of validation by the ministry we provide to them in their presence. uh, By praying with them, by being around them for conversation, by sharing life with them. That is certainly also a very good thing. Never would I speak against that. But my point that I'm making this uh, on the podcast is this. If you're doing these things for what you get out of them, not for what the other person gets from the experience, then you need to, again, check yourself and ask if what you're really trying to do is meet your own needs rather than meet the needs of your church members or of your followers. So the pandemic has this positive. It has revealed our over-dependence on attraction models and now we can correct that. We've learned that worship gatherings are not the only expression of what it means to gather together and to obey the biblical command to not forsake assembling together. In reality, the church globally assembles most often in very small groups or in very small churches. And we need to facilitate that and learn from that in the American church right now. Because in the months ahead, it's going to be much more likely that churches can gather in small groups and in some ways have experience of church and church fellowship there than it is that they're going to be able to gather in these large group expressions, uh, especially the very largest group expressions in the American church. So let's learn to balance ourselves in how we approach church ministry, realizing that attraction models and large group gatherings are helpful Uh, They can be very productive, but they are not absolutely essential 
to the full functioning of the church, and we are learning that in fresh ways today from the pandemic. Well, let me shift gears now and talk about a second pandemic positive that's totally unrelated to the first, and that is the danger of significant church debt has been revealed by this pandemic, and churches are being brought face-to-face with the reality of the seriousness of their decision to take on significant debt. Not only churches are facing this, but so are ministry organizations. Now, let me first of all uh, say that I don't believe that all debt is necessarily a sin or all debt is necessarily wrong. But there is no uh, way in my mind to justify the excessive debt that so many churches and ministry organizations are carrying today for facilities that really have dubious purpose in accomplishing the real mission of the church or the ministry organization. Now let's talk about when some debt may be permissible. I, I'm not a financial analyst. I, I'm a pastor at heart and a seminary president. But I'm going to give you just two observations. Number one, debt may be, and I emphasize may be permissible, in ministry organizations if it's secured by an asset that can easily be converted to satisfy the debt. Now typically, uh Churches take on debt in order to build church buildings, but the reality is most church buildings can be bought for pennies on the dollar of what they take to construct. And so just because you have a million-dollar building doesn't mean you can sell it for a million dollars tomorrow. Church buildings are not really usable for very many things other than churches, and that makes their value much less than a commercial building or a residential building of the same size. So be careful if you're going into debt that your debt is really secured by an asset that can be converted or that can be taken over by the, by the lender in order to satisfy the debt. Uh, there was a time, for example, when I was involved in a church building project. The total project was about $6 million. At the end of the day, uh, the church needed to borrow about $800,000 to finish the project. And the land itself that the church owned was valued at more than the $800,000. And so in our view as a church at the time, this was a permissible kind of debt because the $800,000 was a very small ratio, just over 10% of the total cost of the facility that was being built. And the land itself that was associated with the project would have satisfied the lender, uh, not even taking into account the value of the buildings that had been constructed on the site. So some debt may be permissible if it's secured by an asset that can really be converted to satisfy the lender. And then the second thing, which I've also just mentioned, is some debt may be permissible if it's a very small percentage of the church's budget. Now, I won't fix a certain number on the podcast today, but when I say small percentage, I'm meaning in the single digits of a church's budget. So many times... uh, But debt is incurred that takes up a significant percentage of the church's budget. And during good times, that's not a problem. But we're not having good times right now. We're having pandemic times. And that means that resources uh, are being drained uh, and not being given and uh, and that income is down in ministry organizations and in churches. And debt, Uh, when it's too high of a percentage of our total income, becomes a real problem. So uh, this debt, this danger of significant debt is a problem for a number of reasons. First, I've just mentioned debt can be a harsh taskmaster during difficult economic times. 
you know, some lenders even write into the loan documents that the loan must be serviced first by the ministry organization. That means before pastors are paid and before missions giving is sent, first the debt has to be satisfied. Now that's not in every document, but it is in many. And churches oftentimes don't even pay attention to that because they think, well, of course we'll be able to pay that bill. But just remember that debt can be a harsh taskmaster if in your loan agreements it says that that debt must be paid first before anything else can be taken care of. But debt is also a problem because it's a symptom of trusting in perpetual economic prosperity. Financial uh, experts always talk about the economy flowing in cycles. There's good times and there's bad times. But for some reason, church ministry leaders think that we're going to have perpetual economic prosperity, that things are always going to be good. I was helped a number of years ago by some wise financial leaders here at Gateway Seminary who helped me understand that things were not always going to be uh, good economically. You know, I came into the presidency here when things were pretty good. Uh, the economy was booming. The dot-com uh, explosion had taken place in the late 90s and early 2000s, and I came into the seminary when things were really good. And I had a rather curmudgeonly CFO at the time who said, well, you know, things may not always be this good. And so he was always pressuring us to uh, cut expenses and save resources and not overcommit. And it was a little bit frustrating in my early years because of having to deal with that. And then the 2007-2008 uh, economic downturn happened. And during that downturn, uh, Gateway Seminary did not cancel any classes. We did not lay off any employees. Now, we had to tighten our belts, but we didn't have to make any serious cuts. The reason we were able to do that is because in the previous years, we had been wisely planning for the inevitable downturn that would come. So over these last several years, uh, we've kind of done the same thing again. You know, we sold our property in Northern California, and we came to Southern California, and we built new facilities. But even in the building of those, we tried to exercise some restraint and frugality. Uh, the proposals that were presented to us, we cut them back significantly over what the builders and the architects and the designers proposed to us. We cut them back because we wanted to preserve resources for the long-term benefit of the seminary. Frugality, even in that context, produced resources to survive through a time like we're going through right now. And so uh, debt can be a symptom of trusting in perpetual economic prosperity, which isn't a reality. Listen, this pandemic is a serious economic downturn. Four, five, seven, ten years from now, I don't know what's going to cause the next one, but I will assure you there will be a next one. There will be another time when we have an economic uh, calamity come upon our country and we'll all have to make it through another difficulty. These things come, and when you go into unreasonable debt, you're, you're saying that good times are here to stay. Well, they aren't. They never have been, and they never will be. So be prepared for that, and don't let debt trap you when economic difficulty comes. Another uh, problem with significant church debt is that it's based on the assumption of perpetual church growth. So many churches go into debt saying, well, the new members will help pay for this. Well, that's great if there are new members. But there are factors related to whether or not people come to faith in Christ and join your church that don't have anything to do with your spiritual temperature or your spiritual dynamic or your spiritual strategies. 
For example, I'm acquainted with a community right now that's going through a very difficult time uh, economically, not because of the pandemic, but because of the industry that supported the economy in that community was altered significantly before the pandemic and was already in a, in a phase-down or shut-down mode. <clears throat> because of that, the churches in that community were already struggling, not because of the pandemic, but because of the economic uncertainty of this major industry in their area going through a very serious period of cutbacks and decline. I think about a church, for example, when I was serving in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, there was a something that happened in the late 1980s and early 1990s uh, called the spotted owl. Uh, it was a uh, an animal that was uh, being preserved, and there was a lot of controversy about this, and it caused the logging industry to be shut down, and just a tremendous amount of economic turmoil that was introduced into communities. And one particular church maintained its size over a period of about five to seven years. Now, I later told the pastor that church should have been written up as a great church growth story because during that period of same period of time, five out of six plywood mills in that logging community all went out of business. And all the people associated with those five mills left the community. But the church was able to maintain itself during that difficult time. As I said, that was one of the greatest church growth stories I've ever seen because that church was able to hold its own in, this, in spite of the fact that its economic base was collapsing. So debt is an assumption of perpetual church growth. But finally, it can be a problem when it's a sign that your ego has trumped waiting on God's direction or God's timing. You know, one of the ways God leads us forward is by providing the resources to get something done. And when we run ahead of him and go into unreasonable debt, we always suffer a struggle because we've gotten away from what God really wanted us to do. Now, let me go back and say, not all debt is bad. I can't even say that all debt is wrong. I think there are some measurements that can be used to determine whether or not debt is wise for a church or a ministry organization. And we need to be very careful not to violate those based on the fact that we believe that economic prosperity is perpetual, that we believe the church growth is automatically going to come if we'll go into this debt for whatever we're using the money for, or that we can just run ahead and get this done because we need to help God out and help his timetable along. The pandemic has revealed in some pretty stark and painful ways the danger of significant debt. Now, if you're in that kind of debt, there's not much you can do about it today. You have to find a way to pay it and weather through this difficulty. But if you're an organization or a church that doesn't have this kind of debt, learn from what others are experiencing right now and be wise and cautious as you go into the future. Because as I've said, uh, this is just the latest time that we've had economic difficulty in our country. It will happen again. Well, the last to po pandemic positive for today, third, and that is that less essential functions and activities have been stopped. Now, I wrote a blog a few weeks ago called Barnacles, and in that blog I said that organizations, including churches and ministry organizations, uh, have barnacles attached to us like barnacles on the hull of a ship. This thing gets stuck on, that thing gets stuck on, this thing makes its way into the budget, this thing gets added to a job description, and over time, these barnacles, these add-ons, can slow a church or a ministry down in accomplishing its real mission. The pandemic has stripped away the barnacles. I know here at the seminary we've had 
multiple meetings where we've asked this question, what is essential? What is required? What is at the core of what we have to accomplish? And we've preserved those things. And frankly, we have the resources to preserve those things. But we've also eliminated spending, uh, activities, uh, projects that really, when we analyze them, were add-ons and not really essential to the core. Now, how do you make this a pandemic positive? Well, as you eliminate these less essential, not fully required components of your ministry, don't let them come back. Don't let them come back. Here at the seminary, one of the things we're going to be doing in the next 12 to 18 months is eliminating some things that we've always done because, quite frankly, they're just not necessary. They're just not productive. They're just not contributing to accomplishing our mission. Now, these are hard questions to ask, and they're hard questions to answer. When I first made the statement that we were going to eliminate non-essential spending here at the seminary, uh, it was amazing the responses I got back. Everyone agreed with that strategy. Not one employee, not one cost center manager sent me an email and said, I don't want to do this. They all sent back, I affirm this, I'm with you, I understand the need, and here are the non-essentials I'm willing to eliminate, and here are the essentials I'm willing, that I must maintain. And as I looked at that, I thought, wow, that is not the way I would evaluate that list. Now, here's why it's so hard to ask and answer these questions, because every one of us has a bit of a skewed viewpoint on what's really essential. Uh, this is why some group decision-making and some accountability-type conversations are very important at this point. Because sometimes a person from, the, from outside a department or an organization or a ministry can look at something and say, really? You, you think that's essential? It just doesn't look that essential to me. And having that kind of give and take, that kind of iron sharpening iron kind of conversation can help us to get to the best answers. Because these are hard questions and they are hard to answer, but that kind of work can get us where we need to go. Now there's... Two things that I think we need to really look at in this regard. And the first one is how we're spending money. And the second one is how people are participating. You know, money talks and people walk. That's two things you got to remember. Money talks and people walk. Uh, when you think about where you're allocating resources and what you're spending money on and what it's really producing, you have to ask hard questions. Is this expenditure really accomplishing anything related to our mission? And if so, how? We had a recent discussion about this in one area here at the seminary. Uh, we have a program that we've been promoting pretty aggressively by social media and a number of other ways. So then we went back into the program after this last couple of years of significantly using a lot of different ways to promote the program, and we asked every single person who had enrolled in this program, why did you enroll, and how did you first hear about the program? And in almost well, in every case, the answer to the question, why did you enroll, was because someone I trust or someone I respect recommended or suggested that I do it. 
How did you first hear? Well, very few said by any media means. Almost all said, I heard about it from a friend or from a pastor or from someone who'd been in the program or from someone who'd suggested it to me that I respected. We walked away from that and said, while we still may need to do some media advertising about this program, what we really need to do is spend our serious money recruiting recruiters. In other words, influencing the influencers who will send us people to populate this program. That's what I mean by when I say ask the hard question. Because the surface answer that everyone would give these days is, oh, you need to increase your social media advertising. That's how the world works today. Well, no, it doesn't. We have hard data that shows that while social media may have some, make some contribution to the overall publicity that the seminary has, when it comes down to certain programs, they are populated by people who are recruited individually from people they respect or people they trust. And so this is what I mean when I say that you have to ask hard questions and look for real answers about where you're spending your money and making sure that you're putting it on things that really matter. And then I say people walk. And that is people uh, will vote with their feet. One time a person who had about 500 people coming on the Sunday morning service and about 50 coming on the Sunday night service told me, uh, we're going to consider canceling our Sunday night service. And I said, really? Okay. He said, yes, our our church is going to vote on it. And I said, well, they already voted. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, 450 already voted. They're not coming back on Sunday night. And I said, be careful that you don't just let the 50 vote that are already coming. And he laughed and thought, wow, that's a, that's a really good point. They, they've already voted, haven't they? I said, yes, they have. You know, one of the things that, uh, about the seminary is that we sometimes roll out things that we think are just fabulous. Oh, this is a great idea. This is a great project. This is a great class. People ought to really do this. They, they would really benefit from it. And no one comes. No one wants to enroll. No one wants to pay the registration. No one comes. When that happens... We take a giant step back and we don't say, what's wrong with these people? We ask the question, what's wrong with us? How could we have missed it on this issue? Now, quite frankly, uh, we don't miss it that often because if we did, we wouldn't be in business. But still occasionally we do. We get so caught up in an idea, a project, a program, a possibility that we think, oh, everyone will want this. And it turns out they really don't. So pay attention during this pandemic to what people really are participating in and why. And learn from that what really is at the core of what people feel they need right now in ministry. So, less essential functions and activities have stopped and disciplined ministry leaders won't bring them back. Just let it go. Well, today we've covered the first of three pandemic positives. We've learned that our over-dependence on attraction models has been exposed and we can correct that going forward. We've learned about the danger of significant church and ministry debt and how to analyze it and how to avoid it and what to learn from if we're in that situation and, more importantly, what we can learn from if we're not about preventing it for the future. And we've also considered the fact that the pandemic has revealed less essential functions and activities that we've had to stop. And now we get to ask the real important question, why bring them back and, if so, in what form and how will they really accomplish it? mission of our church or ministry. Well, pandemic positives. It's a negative time right now in so many ways, and I fully understand that. But we can learn from it. We can make something positive from uh, out of it. We can take advantage of what we're learning as we lead on.